out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall and I'm with you for the next, well, probably 60 odd minutes. Anyway, as you know, we love a special guest. It's true. This week it's going to be the turn of the Folk Devils because I spoke to one of the members very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Plus much, much more. Yes, it's going to be Chris Yoviatis. I probably mispronounced that slightly. But anyway, I did my best. And that's Chris with a K, by the way. So, um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world, that is showbiz. We got down to the very exciting subject about the early formative years. And I'd mentioned that, um, yes, the early 70s, I was very excited. My formative period of glam rock and people like Gary Glitter. And from that, Chris responded. Chris, it's over to you. You get the gist. We're going to chat for quite some time. But don't worry, it's quality chat. Chris is amazing. Anyway, oh yes, and also the band have got a new EP out, um, which you'll also hear about, titled Forever. So, sit back, relax, enjoy. Who, who shall not be mentioned ever again, <laughs> despite being a massive star and everybody having his records. But Yes. Um, I've actually, I have to confess, I think I saw Gary Glitter at least once live. Yeah. Uh, but it was a night I saw one of the greatest ever shows I'd ever seen by by the cramps at King's College in uh, in London, but um, I'll give you a bit of background. I grew up, let's see, uh, moved around quite a lot when I was growing up. Uh, but my, uh, my my parents were loved music, and I had a steady diet of uh, the Beatles and Frank Sinatra and uh, all sorts. Quite a sort of eclectic uh, background of music growing up, and then. Uh, early 70s, just as the kind of hormones start to hit. Um, uh, and, you know, being into music started to become a, a thing at secondary school. Um, David Bowie happened. Uh, and I can remember distinctly that very famous appearance of his on Top of the Pops, on the, uh, which used to be on a Thursday back then. Up and seven. the next day, everybody was talking about David Bowie. Uh, so uh, sort of Bowie, uh, glam rock, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and then I really got into The Who. So you could probably hear bits of that in the, some of the folk level stuff. And then uh, as luck had it in 1976, uh, I'd met up with some sort of kindred spirits and we were trying to form a kind of a band influenced by The Who and The Kinks and the 60s American punk bands, which was probably quite, you know, quite hip, I suppose, but that's the kind of stuff we were into. Just at the same time, unbeknownst to us, there was, you know, bands like The Pistols uh, and The Clash and stuff forming in London. And I lived in a place called High Wycombe. I don't know if you know it. but. It, um, it's about 30 miles outside of London, between London and Oxford, but it had a pub called the Nags Head, which was on the pub rock circuit, and it was promoted by a guy called Ron Watts on a Thursday night. And uh, I'd started to go and see bands in early 1976 there, and then uh, the last band before he took a summer break was Eddie and the Hot Rods in like June or July of 1976. And the first band after the break was the Sex Pistols. 
and that was genuinely a kind of life-changing evening. Uh, I, I sort of knew what I was letting myself in for, but obviously hadn't really seen or heard them before that. And uh, so, uh, and I was just really, really lucky that within walking distance of my house was a pub that put on all the top first-generation punk bands like the, the Clash, the Damned. I think they did the first headlining gig at the Nag Said. So I saw all that, and that was my musical, real musical education. So um, I'm a, you know, unre you know, well, yeah, I don't listen to a huge amount of punk rock anymore, but I mean, it was a really, really big deal. And then yeah. that led on to, uh, led on to loads of other uh, yeah. sort of stuff out of that. That was so, but that was if you like the roots are there. I'm a, I'm basically an old punk. Yes. And when did you think? When did the guitar appear in your life? Um, I think that was probably. I seem to recall there was a pal of mine who had a copy of Ziggy Stardust, and of course, back in sort of like early seventies, uh, owning an album was a big deal. I mean, you know, you bought them one at a time, and it took weeks to save up for one when you were still at school. Um, and I went round this house and he had a, a electric, a, Tesco, a, a Woolworths electric guitar and a little amplifier and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, well, let's give that a go. And there was a guitar. I think my dad had tried to play. So I started playing on that. So I don't know, probably about 13 or 14 uh, started to pick up some sort of rudimentary uh, chords and then Sort of, it would have been probably about 75, first time playing with other people. Um, so sort of mid-teens mid yeah. and then started playing a band. And the first gig I did was in 1976. And um, I don't know how much, of a how much of a story, but this is sort of, we were High Wycombe's first punk band called Death Wish. And we did a gig in a place called the Liston Hall in Marlow, which is down on the Thames, quite sort of uh, uh, stockbroker belt-ish. Um, and um, we supported a hippie band, um, but we went full on punk and I just came on, insulted the audience. And we had, it was virtually right, they had to get the police net. Yeah, that was my first ever gig. <laughs> and I think I was lost uh, thereafter because it was such an exciting, bonkers thing to be doing uh, we weren't very good uh, no doubt but i mean we, we gigged fairly regularly and because again the high wickham connection and ron watts a promoter he gave uh, the local bands a chance to play support in uh, bands like generation x xtc um, pretty decent bands uh, and actually, even to the stage in town, also you kind of got a bit of experience under your belt really, really quickly playing with, uh, you know, to a crowd and the rest. Yes. Of it. And we did okay, and that was really, you know, from then it was moving sort of, you know, like eventually thinking I need to move into London if I want to take that further. Yes. Well, that's quite an that's quite an amazing sort of early education. I don't think many people have ever had that kind of experience. No, I mean, I think it was. It was. It, I, I did expect the rest of my life to be really that exciting. You know what it, it was. For, I mean, I turned eighteen in September '76. If that gives you a, right uh, a timeline, I mean that was the perfect time. You know, in, in terms of 
punk, if that was your kind of thing, loud guitars and shouting, basically, if that was your thing, it was like the perfect time to turn 18. So then what happened after that until, you, you know, the folk devils, you know, sort of became... Well, it's a bit of hanging about. I mean, there was a kind of... There was a few bands until I moved into London, which would have been what, about 80, early 80s, uh, and living in squats with other people, and there were loose connections with the likes of Killing Joke. I was very pally with a... Um, I don't know if you know Redbeat. No. Uh, from, they were sort of... Uh, again, they, they had uh, close connections with Killing Joke um, and them. And so there was a, a whole kind of, uh, it wouldn't be low rent, it was a squat scene really in West London uh, through which I met Ian Lowry um, through that. And there was a, an occasion where one of our kind of, circle there's various kind of attempts to get bands going that some were you know, slightly better than others but nothing uh, really and ian was kind of doing pretty well he'd had um ski patrol in particular um and um there was a pal of ours called alex who wanted to record a demo he, he, he was working he was a street cleaner but it meant he actually had a proper wage and he, he booked a studio somewhere in South London. And he got Mark, uh, the, the bass player from the Folk Devils, who must have been about 16 or 17, ridiculously young at the time. This would have been maybe about 80, 82, so 83 maybe. Um, and Ian heard the, the recording that we made and... It was pretty basic stuff, but uh, I came up with a really kind of pretty cool Stooges-ish kind of riff, and Ian latched on to that, and we kind of knew each other by then anyway. And I think his his band, I think there was maybe a, a band called F the Fake or something that had... It, it, Ski Patrol had broken up, and we were got chatting backstage um, at a gig by Brilliant, which was the band that youth formed oh, yeah. after he left Killing Joke. They're two bass players. Um, and they were kind of bubbling under, didn't quite make it, but they were playing a, a pretty decent gig, I think, at the Ace Cinema and Brixton. We were kind of ligging backstage. And Ian just sold me on the idea of a band that uh, he said, do you want to join? You know, I'm forming a band. It's going to be... Um, um, a combination of um, country blues and uh, German metal bashing. And it's that combination, I thought, how could it fail? Um, <laughs> so it was that, that kind of... Um, um, and Ian was, you know, fairly charming guy uh, as well. So we kind of agreed to do something and he got Al, who was in Ski Patrol, and then Mark, who was around, and we, uh, I was living in a squat in Stockwell. Uh, and there was a room downstairs that it was set up as a wee rehearsal studio. Um, I mean, these, these days, you know, kind of free property in London doesn't really come along, but there's a different times. Um, and if you were young and free and single, you know, it was pretty. And we started playing and it was kind of, yeah, this will work. Uh, and immediately kind of just kind of fired it up and, um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I, I guess Ian would have led it, and you know, he was the kind of real kind of main impetus between the the, with the material. He had a particular vision, as it kind of always did. He was a real kind of artist. Yes. Did you did you uh, sort of feel when, when the four of you got together? Did you feel that there was quite a lot of potential between you? Because obviously, there must be thousands of bands that just go, oh, nothing happens. But then the ones that do, there must be that moment where you think, God, this is kind of, we've got something a bit better than, than the previous band or one of those bands who just kind of like, well, that's it, guys, don't yeah, worry. I about think it. pretty much at the first rehearsal, I mean, we got two uh, fully formed songs, I think, and a few other kind of bits and pieces. But uh, Hank Turns Blue, we played at that very first rehearsal. Uh, and Ink Runs Dry, which is actually we finally recorded properly for this new EP that's uh, coming out, and maybe a couple of other things. But those two in particular, we were thinking, yeah, this is, you know, this is pretty good. And I think there was an element, Al, the drummer, had already played with Ian. He was a, you know, he had uh, plenty of fire in his belly, but he was a pretty decent drummer as well. Um, Mark was great, he was a bit of a child prodigy really, uh, Mark, really good solid bass player. Um, I added the, if you like, the noise element and Ian had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. And we all liked what we'd come up with straight away, so it just became a, you know, we just kind of took it from there and yeah. committed to it pretty quickly. Just the early 80s, I mean, at that point, you know, you know, Thatcher had been in from 79 and there was a lot of unemployment and there was a lot of people signing on and there was the job seekers allowance and the enterprise allowance scheme. People loved that, didn't they? And yeah, um, I, probably, was, I chose to sign on. The sign on deal, which was, you know, just, I mean, because at the time there wasn't really, a, it wasn't a bad status, was it? I mean, looking back at it, you know, people don't realise, but sort of going unemployed for a year or so was almost like just the thing people did if you were sort of slightly left of centre and you felt a bit like part Well, of I mean, there were, were 82, was it? About 3 million unemployed. Um, and actually compared to now, the, re the regime of the, the, of, uh, the DHSS, as it was back then, it was pretty reasonable. I mean, it was still the kind of post-war welfare settlement really and if you're out of work it wasn't seen as being your fault or that you're a lazy shite um you know you 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 kind of genuinely got support and i regarded i mean one i think all of us in the vault devils probably regarded the system as a bit rigged anyway and if people were allowed a grant because of course students got full grants back then uh, to go and uh, study you know, whatever, engineering or philosophy or whatever they wanted to do. I felt quite entitled just to take a grant in the form of my dole check and use it to develop my musical talents and career such yeah. as they were. Um, and that was pretty much, you know, I mean, you know, ironically, I mean, it was actually an advantage uh, working if you lived in a squat because you didn't have to pay, spend any of your working, your earnings. On, um, Accommodation. on rent. Yes. Uh, so um, you know, whereas you would if you were, uh, so. No, it was it was it was kind of it was a it's a time that seems so far away now because of how loose everything was compared to how if you if you like over regulated perhaps because of the easy access people have to information and data. I mean, it was easy to live 
on the margins then um, you signed on every two weeks you got some money and you got by and you know when you're young that's it and you've got no responsibilities in the form of children or anything like that it's it was a it was it was quite a liberating time yeah uh, uh, and uh, I guess at the time well, we were a little bit at odds really with everything else that was going on because we definitely tapped into we hadn't quite given up on the if you like the the rock element of uh, the punk scene if you like I mean the post-punk scene a lot of it um started you know i remember the terms being you know rockist became a, a, a term of insult mm. and stuff like that and actually I, I think whether some an element of irony or is because we were by instinct a rock and roll band uh we kept that but we had ian adding this kind of very acerbic kind of edge to uh, the lyrical content and the whole attitude he wanted to project. Um, but we, you know, we also harked back to, um, I don't know, the Stooges and things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, they talk about the punk scene, but I, I wasn't introduced to things, particularly the MC5 had a big impact on me before punk came along. We just kind of picked up a record out of curiosity once. Yeah, because because you know there was the punk period, which was very short before it all gets a bit rubbish, and then you had post-punk, and obviously you had the mainstream charts, which were like just there, on top of the pops, with you know big hair, big uh -huh. pads, and all that. But then you know you had those kind of the early indie bands like you know Echo and the Bunny Men and Simple Minds and U2, and then '83, the Smiths appeared, and there was definitely a feeling from '83 to '87, which is the years of the Smiths, where indie pop was definitely something. I mean, you had all the other bits and pieces as well going on, and then you know ecstasy hits, and then the dance scene happens, and then grunge happens, and then mm -hmm. you know it's a bit simplistic, okay? But yeah, yeah, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, <laughs> but you I'll know, tell you, you, what, I mean, yeah, we were definitely at odds with, if you like, the indie, the if you like the the the, the jangle element that really, the, I think the Smiths were the kind of the, the they Uber. Were they were the ones. Uh, yeah, they, they were the ones. And I, I still think that my favourite comparison, the Folk Devils, of the Folk Devils, was, with, it was I think it was in Zigzag magazine uh, back, uh, back you know, while we were still active and described as like the Smiths on acid. Uh, and, I, and I thought that's probably quite a good thing because we were, I mean, Ian, was, Ian liked his words. We, the words were important. It wasn't just noise. It was we were trying to put across songs and ideas, um, but we wanted the guitars to be more, if you like, uh, rock and roll, really. I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the bands that I really had an influence as I was learning how to play guitar, The Who, Small Faces, Dr. Feel Good, and then the early punk bands. I mean, that was really kind of what I aspired to play like. And yes. then... Mark was a massive fan of the Stranglers, and you can hear his that sort of sound in what he does. You know, that almost like a bass guitar as a lead guitar. So we we're all, you know, you know, kind of, you know, the whole idea was almost like a three-man front line, an assault almost. Yeah. Uh, on audience. Because the one, the other thing about that period, which we we slightly forget, and then you remember and think, oh yes, you had those gatekeepers. You know, like there was, I mean, obviously the mainstream was the mainstream, but then you had 
you know, John Peel, you had the NME Melody Maker Sounds record mirror, and, and every uh -huh. town and city and London, obviously, had lots of little venues, you know, everyone had an alternative night, didn't they? Norwich had one, you know, Bristol, Leeds, Glasgow, Manchester, all had yeah, those yeah. kind of nights where, you know, you could, you know, you got out of just playing in front of your friends and family and anybody you could emotionally blackmail to see you and actually go and go up the motorway in a van, play in front of strangers and go, blimey, we just got, you know, a new audience of like 150, 200 people. And, and obviously, you know, you quite, you know, and you progress because you've got, you know, three John Peel sessions in quite quick succession in, in your early years, which must, you know, you want to feel like you're progressing. Otherwise you think, what's the point of this? We, no one, you know, we're not playing live. We're not really getting lit, heard beyond our, you know, little community. So that must have felt like a really big blessing from from such an iconic figure. Well, well, I think the, the Peel connection in particular, when he picked up on Hank Turns Blue, uh, and I think, I think I'm right in saying he played it every night for his show, which was, I think, four nights a week. Every night for two weeks. I mean, he, he really went for it. And it kind of put us on the map and we got in the indie charts and stuff, which was worthless, really, in terms of sales, any serious sales. But it actually meant we'd sold a few. We had to repress the record and all that uh, kind of stuff. And it gave us an opportunity to do exactly what you just described, which was head up the motorway to Leeds or York was uh, uh, one of the first places we went to play. Uh, I better not mention Blackpool because I never had a good time at Blackpool. We, I'm not sure we ever got paid in Blackpool, although we played it a couple of times. Um, but that kind of adventure, you know, uh, and heading out and playing, uh, you know, alongside other bands. And there was that period of 84, 85, where there were lots of miners' benefits and that, that kind miners of stuff. Miners' benefits, yes. Red Wedge. I uh, don't think we ever did a Red Wedge thing, but it, again, it was a very much of that sort of that period. We certainly did a few miners' benefits. Red uh, I'm pretty sure we did one with a very in early incarnation with, of Pulp, because they were operating way back when. Yes, uh, that's the weird and, one. You know, but, you know, somebody, some archivist somewhere has probably got a uh, note of it. So, yeah, I mean, that was the kind of... Uh, Peel gave us the platform to go and do that. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was, if you like, there was a sufficiently kind of driven scene that pressing up two or 3,000 copies of, of, a, of a record seemed like a reasonable thing to do, you know. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that, so we continued recording. We got the opportunity to play abroad in Germany and Holland, Holland quite a few times. And again, playing actually much more prestigious venues and with bigger bands and, uh, and stuff. So there was the opportunity there. So there was a sense of progress and we felt musically, we kept on kind of, you know, if you like developing, yes. but there was, a, there was a point where it got a bit frustrating because everybody gets a bit older and you just get a bit tired of waking up on, on a mattress on a floor somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, the tension start creeping in and if you don't get that sense that there's something coming and we I think we I mean we didn't help ourselves we weren't particularly good at you know doing the networking thing we were our own worst enemies and there was a period where I think I think quite a few people expected us to kick on to the next level um but we never really did and you know part of that was really kind of the um, 
our own weaknesses, really, shall we say. Yeah, because uh, the few punk bands I've done from New York, really, they, they, there was definitely in the late 70s, there was a huge you know, problem with drugs in New York, and they were not going yeah. good. And so, I mean, you know, the 80s, because my memory, which is, you know, people sort of drunk a lot, they smoked a bit, you know, and it seemed to be kind of, yeah, drinking was big. But you, you know, you, you know, you know, quite a few members of the band got quite heavily into the drug scene. You know, at yeah. quite an early age, which is like, Ur. and I know Lemmy from Motorhead really hates him. You know, he though he took up for drugs, it was mostly speed. Let's face it. Um, but yes, anything heavy was one of his kind of real taboos. Whereas, you know, members of the Folk Devils did get slightly carried away, didn't they? Yeah. Well, there was a, you know, without wishing to get, get into uh, to details, I think. I think a few of us maybe feel that some of us, you know, some of us were quite lucky to survive that period. And of course, it, sadly, Ian didn't really make it into his dotage because he died of a uh, drugs overdose in 2001. Um, but that was, if you like, that was post that period. That's what I think surprised and shocked us all uh, that, um, you know, he didn't kind of, you know, that he got caught out, you know, the sucker punch the hidden arm, uh, if you like. But yeah, the, I mean, London was awash with substances, um, uh, especially if you were living, if you like, on the fringes of respectable society and squats and stuff like that. Uh, and there was, you know, there's, I guess, a quite a hedonistic time without it sort of, I don't know, almost as a reaction, you know, I think for a lot of people, they're looking for ways to make life a little bit more bearable, perhaps, for themselves. But, I mean, whatever whatever the reasons, I'm loath to kind of explain, to, you know, why people do certain things uh, too much. You know, if the stuff is out there, people are going to partake of it. And yeah. we de I definitely think it... Um, it started becoming a, a, a problem not just for the band, but people that we hung out with. So you've got the, this kind of rather darkening mood around the places that you hang out in uh, during the 80s. And, yeah, I, I mean, I think to some extent we tapped into it. I think part of that was the content, particularly of uh, Ian's kind of uh, lyrical observations were informed by that kind of quite... Uh, bleak mood whereas I mean you know that I suppose that was the mid 80s and the late uh, moving into the late 80s I mean that's when you saw the kind of the financial sector in London explode and yuppies and all that kind of stuff we came from a we came out of a rather different kind of world and world view I mean I stayed in London after that but I never felt particularly kind of it was almost like there were two Londons and there's probably, I mean, I live in Scotland now. So even when I go to London now, I'm sure there's very different Londons out there to, um, you know, the ones where people live in very expensive high rise apartment blocks close to the centre. And then there's, you know, everybody else, you know, scrabbling about trying to get by. Yeah. Uh, it must be uh, I'm not crazy. sure things have changed that much. I think it's just the nature, you know, the, the, the detail has changed. Because yes. one thing I notice with most bands, they have this kind of five-year narrative, the classic five years, you know, getting together, spending 12 months, 
you know, and you've, you've taken quite a lot of those boxes, you know, like the John Peel sessions, you got three, which is very impressive. And then that first album and, you know, things feel like you're progressing, which is important. And often, you know, there's a lot of touring and that kind of wears a band down quite a bit. And, and then the sort of tricky second album, you know, though it's a cliche, you know, by then everyone's just really tired and a bit fed up and things. I suppose people haven't really sat down and had a proper conversation and said, look, what's really happening? Can we try and do the next level rather than we're slightly sort of just pissing each other off now, aren't we? So I just wondered. Yeah, yeah well, I was, I just, it's just an interesting observation because I, th I think there's a, uh, one of the sort of catalysts for the folk devils breaking up in the f first incarnation of the folk devils in the spring of 86 was uh, um, a, uh, an interview with, what's his name? Is it Ian Taylor? Um, oh, it was in the enemy. It was, was it Eric, and he really took us to people. Was it Neil Taylor? Sorry? Was it Neil, Neil Taylor? Taylor? That's right. Yeah, it was Neil Taylor, and he really. I mean, he laid into us something rotten, but it was almost uh, a piece that could have been written about any band at the kind of level we were operating at. Which is like, there's not a lot of, if you like, material reward for what we're doing, and we're also at a stage where you're growing up surprisingly quickly. You move from, I mean, Mark was still in his teens when the Folk Devils formed. He was a father by the time the Folk Devils uh, folded. Um, and you, I think you go, if you go going from say early twenties to late twenties, there's a shift that happens, I think almost naturally. I think that you kind of, you, cognitively, I think you change. Or if you don't, you start you get you end up being stuck as a bit of a cartoon. And you know, for me, that was almost kind of you just kind of want to move on a little bit and kind of do a bit of other stuff. Um, so I think there's a kind of uh, yes thing that so, happens there. So was this in uh, was this interview and feature in the NME? What did it do to the band? I think it set us against each other. I mean, you know, we, we didn't help our cause. Neil Taylor was very late when he turned up. Ian was very drunk um, and quite aggressive towards him. And there was a lot of tension between that Neil picked up on in the room. Uh, I mean, some members of the band still haven't forgiven him for writing it. I've been thinking, well, he's a journalist, what do you expect? Um, he, his job is to write a story. It isn't to tell, you know, it's, and it's his story. And it's almost like he was looking for a band to highlight the kind of slightly ludicrous nature of being in a band, if you like, uh, uh, at that time, and especially at that level where you're not really kind of making uh, money. So, I mean, it depends on who you speak to in the Fold Elvis. I mean, you know, I just kind of thought ah, it's water under a uh, water under the bridge but I know somebody posted uh, um, uh, a sort of scan of the interview on the in on Facebook or something maybe a year ago and uh, not mentioning any names but I mean certainly a former member of the band got pretty uh, pretty upset about it because it's it's like an open a bit of a sore one because you know we were you know and I think for, from my point of view I think we just weren't grown up enough to handle it. Uh, um, but that's, that's my own personal kind of yes. 
Because uh, at that time you had management though, didn't you? With, with yeah, I mean, it took place in our manager's uh, office, uh, Nick Jones, uh, who kind of uh, ran a label called Carbon, which had the scientists and world domination enterprises um, and ourselves. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, in the end, it was a mess. We, you know, I think, I guess, you know, to that extent, I'd say we were pretty authentic because we weren't really sufficiently self-conscious about what we were doing. Uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, I think there's there's an element. So, I mean, you know, sometimes you, I think a band can get lucky that you know something hits it, but we we didn't really have uh, any great strokes of luck apart from the fact that John Peel picked up on us. That was our big kind of like, you know, yes, uh, I know. Been... But we didn't really, we weren't really smart enough or cold blooded enough to really. Uh, take that opportunity yeah, I, I know yeah. but you were you were you were signed or you released on on situation two records were... well that was that was uh, the mark two uh, version and that was really and that sort of led into the king blank project and stuff where ian uh developed got had this re relationship with situation two beggars banquet and then there was the mark two devils that released sort of one ep uh, and that's uh, John, the current drummer, and Nick, who'd worked with Ian before. So it was it was a it was a tangled web uh, <laughs> being woven. Um, and again, and, and again, I've I've spoken with uh, John about this, and I think one of the problems with the second incarnation, uh, he, he told me a story of a guy who travelled a long way to see one of their first gigs. And he asked if they were going to be playing any, uh, you know, any of his favourite songs, which were songs he knew from the first lineup. And Ian wanted it, it had turned it into a kind of ground zero thing. And there was no old, oldies in there at all. Um, and I think John says, it, in retrospect, there might have been a bit of a mistake, because what you want to do is really build up a, you know, a, a legacy under a, you know, if you, for want of a better word, a brand name. But, I mean, Ian wasn't really into that. Each project had its own particular identity. And the Folk Devils, when they reformed, were nothing really like the first uh, Folk Devils. It was a different, not just a different lineup. it was a different thing musically going on. It was uh, much more... Um, I mean, just as fiery, I would say, but much more of a sort of genuinely post-punk kind of sound uh so, possibly so going back to your mark one the mark one version there was you alan mark and ian that's did, right did you have a moment in then 86 where it was like that there was kind of a moment and mark one finished and then mark two started yeah um where we're ba basically we'd had a very disappointed. We we went to Holland. We played some great shows, but we had a really disappointing recording session, which kind of used up what remaining money we had. And we came back, and it was a bit lackluster. We made the mistake of getting our uh, then sound engineer Mickey, who was a really really great live sound engineer. He was a really you know he he knew what to do when you're playing in front of an audience in a hall. And we thought, 
let's do this and take him to the studio that we uh, we had in the north of Holland, bleak, the bleak north of Holland in winter. And it just didn't happen, really. It was all a bit lacklustre. Um, and again, maybe a lack of maturity. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, you know, not at an individual level, it's perhaps we didn't really quite know what we were doing uh, sufficiently. We had some great songs, songs that were... Um, it drags on, which we've done for the Peel session, which we still play live now. Uh, but and we we thought that would be the kind of, if you like, the feature track from the session. But we've got the the version that came out on the uh, complete recorded works just lacks a certain something, and we never felt able to really put it out. And and from then, if you've got nothing to kind of punt uh, and the tension's just starting to go. We, we just, I think we probably were able to admit to ourselves it was going nowhere at that point. Um, yeah. So did, you, did you have a moment? It wasn't when... particularly sort of traumatic. I think we just agreed to disagree. Yes. Uh, and move on. And so, so who moved? I know obviously Ian stayed. Who moved on then? Um, I think I, I think Ian was key. Ian was always Ian in all the time I knew him was always making music. He was always going to be doing that. I think I'd reached the stage where I was get, uh, getting a bit fed up of leading the kind of lifestyle that we'd been leading. And I kind of, um, I'd really lost the kind of desire to do it, the, the, the need to do it, which I think you need, especially if you're not making my, real money out of it. Um, uh, Alan was always kind of doing his, his thing, but there was a it just kind of the time had passed for us. I think we'd kind of missed the opportunities. There's a, you know, there's a kind of if you like, there's a it's a bittersweet thing. I think I think certain bands there's a moment that they've got to seize, or else the time passes. Because we're talking about you know fundamentally a music that has to be. In, I mean, you know, 20 or 30 years on, you listen back. But at the time, that scene was all about being contemporary. It was about being now. And there was a real sense of, you, 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 you know, you, you do the right thing at the right time and you'll get an audience. Uh, but if you don't, you know, if you don't get the audience that was there for you, they'll move on to something else. And I don't think we, you know, we didn't really get it together. So uh, yeah. I don't know if it sounds like a sort of, you know, I mean, I didn't regret it at the time. I was, I was, you know, I was just kind of, it was a, it was a thing to move on. I think I probably learned more from being in folk devils about kind of personal relationships, <laughs> uh, work, especially working relationships um, that stood me in good stead in everything else I, I did after that. But Ian, Ian wasn't going to stop anytime soon. I, I just needed a break. Uh, I'd ha uh, had some, health problems, lifestyle-related health problems. Um, but I decided I just wanted to actually feel okay when I woke up in the morning rather than I, you know, or, you know it, nothing actually as dramatic or as glamorous as uh, it, might, it might be implied. I just had, you know, I was eating bad food, drinking too much and all the rest of it. And I just wanted to kind of make myself well. So getting out of playing in bands was a good thing. Um, 
Of course, I went back to play with Ian back in 88 after the Folk Devils Mark II folded. I'm not sure what the story was there. I mean, it was a relatively short-lived um, kind of uh, episode, the Folk Devils uh, uh, Mark II. And I saw, I actually went to see them and I loved them actually. Um, I was quite surprised that I went fully expecting to loathe them. Um, um, But actually I was really impressed. I really liked what they were doing. And there was still an element I really loved what Ian was about. I kind of, you know, latched onto that. Um, But I I don't know what, and then he, I think he he still had the deal with uh, Situation Two Beggars. And he had the King Blank, and they were—I think—they were really interested in me as a solo artist. So he came up with the King Blank uh, name uh, and formed a band to uh, make an album. He'd done a, a couple of tracks with the Screaming Blue Messiahs, produced by Bill Carter from the Screaming Blue Messiahs, which is the first single. Um, and then, who were a big deal at the time? I mean, the the first lineup and folder was supporting the Messiahs, sort of. I think at, was it University of London Union, somewhere like that. Um, and he's put a band together. He got the money to do it, go and do an album, and uh, and that was uh, I actually, ironically, I think I probably enjoyed that experience of working with Ian, the King Blank experience, as much as anything, making that album. And, we, and I, I thought it was a really great band that we, you know, we kind of cobbled together. Again, uh, I thought this could really go somewhere. So, Ian's writing was really, really strong uh, at that point. But the record company didn't really want to get behind the band. They wanted Ian, so they kind of fizzled out. And uh, again, I had a big falling out with Ian uh, when we came up to record sort of uh, what became the follow-up. And uh, rekindled a friendship with him later on. Uh, but that was the, if you like, the last uh, serious attempt to work with him. Yes. So, so was um, that that was all around the early nineties, wasn't it? No, no. I think the King Blank album was eighty eight, um, and I think we'd, I think we'd started. I think I think we'd started recording stuff that ended up on the second album, the King Blank Two Ian Lowry Group uh, record. Um, I'm on two tracks on, on that, and I think on one of them I mixed down so low you wouldn't know I'm there. Yeah. Uh, um, but th- that was it. Was precisely at that point where Ian and I had a falling out. Actually, um, but I, I won't. You know, no point in talking about it. Really. <laughs> be too too bad. But um, yes. But that that was kind of the moment. You know, that that procession was the last time. You kind of recorded with him, and that was the yeah. age. I mean, we rekindled our friendship. Actually, he moved up to Scotland. Uh, I moved. To, I moved up to Scotland in '91 uh, to uh, complete my education. I went to do a degree in Stirling and lived in Stirling. And by let's see, by '93, I'm guessing he perhaps uh, uh, yeah '90, maybe even '97, certainly '93. He'd moved up to, he was staying in Leith uh, in Edinburgh. And we'd sort of been in touch. And we actually, we became really good friends. We went out drinking and Ian certainly knew the, the pubs of Edinburgh. Uh, surprisingly well for somebody who'd not really spent that much time there. And got very fond memories of my time 
when I mean I'm you know, I'm still here, but uh, hanging out with Ian because it really it w- was nice. It kind of you know left our uh, left our friendship intact because what one of the things about being in a band is there are times when uh, the relationships are so intense that you forget that you're friends. Mm, uh, and it, th- there's a kind of poison that creeps into them, and it's just nice to have that relationship. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of, if you like, a, a bit about my relationship with Ian. I don't know what that says about mu- the music. But... Yeah, but did you, I mean, for that decade and then the next one until, you know, you, you sort of get back into the folk devils, did you... Um, was the guitar put to one side and you just went, right, I'm just going to get on with this? Um, for a while, when I when I committed to studying, I mean, I, I always hung on to my, my, my black Stratocaster and occasionally it would be wheeled out at maybe a, a jam session uh, or whatever. But almost I kind of... Um, Really, just put music to to really to one side until late. I concentrated on my studies, and then I did a, a doctorate, so that took up plenty of brain space. Um, and I mean, there was the odd uh, there was the odd thing where there was a uh, there was a few old friends. There was a uh, there was a band actually during the summer. Uh, I came down to visit my mum, brought my guitar down, and we did some music. Even did some gigs. Um, there was a band with a guy called Pete Lewis. He used to follow the folk devils uh, about called Fast Babies was my favourite name uh, of, of his. And we did a, a couple of gigs and a couple of uh, sessions. And again, he, I was attracted to working with him because he was a good writer. He wrote interesting lyrics and, uh, and songs. Um, but since the sort of since the turn of the millennium, it's a midlife crisis of sorts. I've played in I've played music fairly constantly since then. Uh, I, I, I played uh, ended up went through a couple of convoluted things, but play in a band called Dave's New Bike, which is a kind of folk um, rock. Is maybe the closest generic thing but I you know obviously I'm adding the kind of rock element but it's song based again it's about uh, the songs so uh, again there's we've actually made uh, a couple of albums uh, got some airplay and that kind of stuff so working at you know um, a decent level where the quality is reasonable enough to get airplay even six music Mark Radcliffe professed himself to Played one of our things on uh, on his show, so did he? Did kept he going. Produce, did he produce sorry. one of the John Peel sessions? He did. Yeah, he did. Mm. And what was quite touching is when the reissues came out, he played "Where the Buffalo Roam" uh, the week it, it came out, and he actually sort of, if you like, uh, recanted, if you like, the what he described as the sad story uh, behind the the folk devils but he really he, he spoke with great fondness so uh yeah i think it was the first one he produced um and uh yeah it was it was, yeah, it was quite quite interesting so he i mean he's but he seems to um he seems to notice you know thankfully whenever my, if my name's attached to something at least he plays it 
Yes, that's good. So, so, um, coming, so coming up to this this strange year, well, the last five years, obviously, the folk devils sort of appeared again, didn't they? Yeah, well, you can blame the internet for that, really. <laughs> um, well, it's this strange phenomenon, really, of social media enabling people to get in touch. So had it been the case that you'd had several decades with very little contact, apart from having to say, oh, geez. Almost none, really, uh, I would say. Did you? I think, how I, did think you, I probably had a little bit of contact with Mark through that. Again, Mark and I fe- uh, had a falling out. I won't go into the detail. Um, um, but it was kind of, you know, lifestyle related, shall we say. Um, and we kind of just all drifted off into different worlds. Surprisingly, the last refuge of the folk devil seems to be academia because both Mark and I ended up taking our studies to a kind of, you know, beyond first degree uh, (laughs) level. How did the Um, band, just briefly, how did the band kind of have that moment where you heard that Ian had died? I mean, did, did, because that must have been like one amazing shock. Well, it took a lot of time for a few people. I heard more or less the day or the day after. I can remember it really, really vividly. Uh, uh, and I was a late adopter of mobile phones. Uh, but I had my, my wee Nokia. And I was actually on holiday with my family in uh, North Wales, I think. Uh, and my phone went and it was uh, Courtney, who was Ian's ex during the time, from the time of the Folk Devils. And she rang me up to tell, tell me uh, that, he'd uh, died, um, which was a real shock. I mean, uh, conveniently, however, I mean, I'd spoken with Ian maybe two or three months previously, just after I completed my doctorate, and he rang up to, and we had a long, warm conversation, and, you know, everything was kind of right with the world. It was just interesting that he chose to just call me up. Um, and we had a long chat, I mean, you know, arranged to, you know, we'll see each other, I'll be down south. Anyway, you've got this horrible news, um, and, um, but convenient enough for me, I was uh, down south or close enough to the south, and we just decided, well, we'll, we'll go and stay at my mum's, she, she lives in High Wycombe, and uh, we'll go to the funeral. Uh, and I'm really, really glad I did because it was actually it was the greatest party in. Ian was very social. He didn't, you know, his his uh, his place was the pub and the Churchill is kind of the local, the Folk Devils local on Kensington Church Street uh, was full of folk. The church where the funeral took place, uh, where the service took place, was mobbed. It was actually surprisingly. I mean, he really. I was stunned at the numbers. It was the church was full, um, and yeah, it was. I mean, as far as I don't think I'm not sure. I think yeah, Mark was there. Uh, I, that was the first time I'd seen Mark in a long time. Um, Nigel, who played uh, Nigel Pulsford, who went on to some bigger and uh, better things with Bush, but who played in King Blank, uh, was there. Hugh, who was also in that band. And quite a few people, I don't think, uh, we don't know what happened to Al. 
uh, every so often there's news of Al from somewhere, and we don't really know what happened to Al. I said, we think he's living somewhere down in the West Country, but we're not sure. Um, but sadly for Nick, uh, I think Nick had moved to America by um, 2001. I think like maybe 1990 moved to America. He was working for a record company in New York, I think, if I get my facts right. Um, and he didn't hear that Ian had died until about a decade afterwards. Um, and it obviously hit him really hard because he'd worked really, really closely. He went back a long way uh, uh, with Ian, but he's, you know, he's over in, in America. And gradually, I think, I think the, uh, the, if you like, the impetus for doing something really started with David Lowry, Ian's older brother, a big influence on his musical taste because Ian always had a real love for a bit of blues rock um from the sort of late 60s and early 70s um but i think ian what ian hadn't really uh, sorry david really hadn't appreciated ian's work almost until he died and he i think he wanted to honor the legacy and i think there was a move there to put out stuff to honor it so i think and with nick's if you like know-how um as a sort of if you like a you know, somebody who knew the, uh, the the record industry, the music industry, he was able to start doing that. And so the first uh, real signs of that was the, the Peel Sessions coming out with uh, the Folk Devils Mark II EP and then uh, the Peel Sessions coming out as a sort of digital-only package. Uh, and then it, that would have been, was that 2013? By then, um, we'd all kind of hooked up and got in touch via Facebook and stuff like that. That kind of, um, and it was a bit of half-hearted chat about maybe getting playing together uh, uh, again, you know, which we kind of laughed out of court, um, especially without Ian being there. And then 2015, it was the Optic Nerve reissue package of all the recorded stuff, the double vinyl, CD, you know, a proper release. Um, and as that was being kind of put together in the early part of 2015, uh, I just thought, well, we were a live band. I mean, if nothing else, it would be really nice to play some of these songs live and do a show. Uh, and the original idea was really to do one. Um, but it's a bit like that Al Pacino in Godfather 3, you know, I tried to get it back out, well, they pulled me back in. <laughs> uh, we did one show, and the, the whole setup was convoluted. We didn't really know what we were letting ourselves in for. Um, but John and Nick from the Mark II, Mark and myself from the Mark I, and I thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's see how this goes. And we were a bit concerned, obviously, about the, the vocals um and we were getting to the point of shit we're gonna we're not gonna do it. we actually set a, a date uh, of when we were going to do it because uh, there was an opportunity that i could fit in around about the time of the release in september of that year and i had a few days off where i could come down from uh, london and we thought are we going to do it and then it just happened that um, somebody suggested uh, dave uh, hodgson norm 
as he's nicknamed, who we'd met before and was a knew Ian from way back when, but was also from the northeast, and uh, and he came along to uh, um, the one of the rehearsals that we had in the summer. And we took it seriously. It wasn't just turn up and play the songs. We actually spent quite a lot of time that summer uh, rehearsing and seeing if it worked. But we were all kind of itching to play, really, I think. I mean, I've been playing fairly regularly with this band, Dave's New Bike, so my chops were in fairly good shape. Mark had really kind of um, uh, got himself together, was in a good place uh, physically, mentally, and uh, the rest of it. And there was a kind of just a kind of really quite nice, warm coming together of people that uh, that we knew. And at the time, initially, it was just John, Mark and myself, because Nick, although it was a bit of a schlep from Scotland, Nick was living in the States. But we kind of started rehearsing the set and we had a couple of sessions during the summer and left it for a bit. And then once we thought, yeah, Dave, we... It, we weren't knocked out straight away, but what he had was he had the real willingness to do the work and really learn the songs and think about what he was doing rather than just, you know, be some bloke in front of a, a, a band. And uh, by the time we, we were thinking, actually, this could, could work, um, and then we set up, uh, if you like, uh, Nick had been kind of playing along with all the stuff. I mean, essentially the first gig was just all, all, all the old stuff anyway. So all you need to do is kind of get the records out and relearn the parts. Um, and Nick came over, we did the rehearsal, and then we did this show in, um, uh, was it Dalston somewhere? Um, the, the waiting room. The, one of the worst loadings, I can remember that. We had a shit ton of gear, and it was uh, one of the worst loadings ever. But um, it was quite a big event. My wife and my eldest son, who really likes the Folk Devils, uh, that's his kind of thing anyway, that kind of edgy uh, sound, uh, came down from uh, Scotland. And my wife said possibly the most telling thing. We did okay, actually. We had to turn people away because it was such limited space. Uh, but you know people and uh, we, we did uh, but it, it, she said you know why it was fairly quiet the reaction of the first few songs uh, I said no why I said because people were surprised that you weren't shit uh, <laughs> uh, and it kind of uh, and we felt we acquitted ourselves more than well and actually even before we'd done that we'd had an offer of another gig later that year uh with the membranes up in preston at continental in preston with the wolfhounds and uh the membranes and uh to, to be frank that one uh the rehearsal was the sound check we insisted well we'll do it as long as we get a really, really long sound check uh, so we could get the songs kind of fired up. Uh, but, I mean, we're not talking, it's not prog, it's not particularly complicated. Uh, and, if, you know, um, and we've got a lot of faith in our, our rhythm section, if you like, to hold it all together. Um, so, and it was, it was just a huge amount of fun. Uh, but we also felt, actually, this is pretty good. 
um, you know, we really thought, I mean, a bit like my wife, wow, it's not shit. And, um, you know, because if it had been, we would have done one gig, had a drink, and that would have been see you later. But we could, there was a kind of, if you like, the fire was rekindled. Um, Dave's a very creative kind of input member. And the chemistry worked. In some ways, it might have worked differently. If Ian had been there and it was, you know, Nick and myself, it would have worked differently. But, you know, in, in some ways, Nick and I formed a much more of a collaborative relationship. And I kind of, I've always liked the sort of that twin guitar sound. I, you know, I just love the MC5. And I thought, well, this is the closest I'm going um, to get to that sort of thing. And so we start, and, and Mark was the one really insisting on us being a living entity. If we're going to play, then we have to do original material. Um, so after those initial two gigs, uh, Nick lined up. Uh, I think half a dozen dates for the following summer with the Inca Babies and rehearsing for that we worked up forever which is the first uh, and, and we since then we've started trying to kind of introduce some you know to become a living band because you've got to kind of play new stuff really I think and yeah. write but you know I think we're all kind of you know it's what uh, you know I think the set we play live, which obviously, you know, that's, you know, we were really disappointed. We did, we had some shows lined up in June and October, which are all bit in the dust. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, you know, plenty of stuff that's kind of familiar uh, to anybody, you know, for those few people who really liked us anyway. Um, but I think, you know, we're all pretty kind of interesting creative people in our own way and I think actually if you put five people in a room together with a desire uh, and, and again it's a, probably a slightly more grown-up attitude than we had when we were all in our 20s and full of you know beer and whatever else uh, yeah so look because optic nerve obviously that's great to get you know a label you know, interested, and they're such a brilliant label, or he is, from Preston. Well, I, mean, I think it helped that Ian had some Folk Devils records, actually, in his collection, anyway. Right. So he was able to, um, yes, work on them. But then you've got this EP coming out as well in the in the autumn, haven't you? Is it the autumn? Yeah, in September. In September. Uh, so that that's kind of new recordings with one old favorite and then to a new recording of uh, of the old uh, of the old favorite i suppose part of that was when we got into the studio no we'd wanted to do it you know we'd wanted to uh, write stuff uh do something new um and you know you, you i think in some ways ironic i mean it's not you know obviously not for the money but i think we kind of all need to do this there's a need to do it um and if you're going to do it, 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 it we were never a nostalgia act uh we were never we were never really the soundtrack to anybody's good time um you know that's not what we were about we were uh you know malcontents uh really that's that was our shtick yeah uh, and um there's still an element of channeling that anger uh and uh, fury and trying to do something creative uh with it um but at the same time i think 
there's much less anger being directed at other members of the band <laughs> uh, yeah. than uh, than there used to be. Let's put it that way. Do you uh, feel? Do you feel because it's like the past and the time? You've probably got thirty-five years, haven't you? From those, well, yeah, probably a bit early. Do you feel that because there's there's kind of a lot of people I've interviewed from from that period, and and you know everyone's slightly different, but there is a few patterns where someone's done that musical kind of moment and then had to get their life together and, you know, had a few little, you know, other kind of bands, but nothing that serious. And then have got to that point where playing music again and, and sort of going back and sort of rediscovering that album or those songs mm -hmm. that you played and that band, you know, and some of the, the mates that you had at that time. Plus then thinking, well, actually, I quite like A, playing live. It's good fun. I'm not going to, mm. I'm not going to give my day job up and then recording the new EP is again is just another nice challenge and in I was just kind of feeling that perhaps it's to do with I don't know if you were trying to do that like 10 years after breaking up it would have felt like oh you're trying to to relive your youth whereas now it has that feeling of like actually you just want to do it because you're at an age where if you don't do it now Ten years time, you're going to be all in your 70s and it's going to probably be too late <laughs> so you might so you might as well crack on and do it and and not really worry about what anybody says, and apart from yeah, life, obviously, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a bit of a debate, I guess, within the in the band about uh, age and the use of the term old and stuff. But in some ways, I think you, you know, well, you don't have any choice. You ain't going to defeat it. You're getting older, uh, so you might as well almost embrace it. But I think there's an element in, in that if you can't do it, then in the moment, really, for the folk devils was. Uh, when the the reissue, the optic nerve reissue package came out, there was going to be no point in trying to get back together after that. If we if we put those out and left it for two years, and there's no point. But there was a genuine reason to kind of you know, all right, let's celebrate what we did back then and see what happens really. And and in, in many ways, that attitude of playing live and just seeing what happens was the spirit of, if you like, the late 70s and early 80s uh, to me, that people took chances. It didn't have to be perfect. Now you go and see a band just starting out and everything's kind of pretty fucking slick. And uh, it, 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 it's not really the kind of, it, it's the culture's maybe moved on yeah. uh, as well. But I think that idea of just doing it for the sake of doing it, you know, uh, I mean, you know, it's the heart of creativity, really. It's that you know, it's not you know, creativity that's done for a purpose isn't really creativity. Uh, you'll excuse me at the moment. I'm reading a lot of Krishnamurti, and he talks about stuff like this, and it just kind of made me think that you know, if you're going to be creative, it's not. I mean, it's good to be. If you like, if you've got something you've got to do anyway, like you know, paint the fence or whatever, you might as well be creative while you're doing it. Uh, but sometimes you just got to be creative because you want to be creative. Uh, and if you can find a format that works for you, uh, and, you know, there's still something, you know, I pick up a guitar every day, um, it's sometimes just for a cuddle. Yes. Uh, but it's still something that's a kind of, you know, and sometimes something exciting happens when I play the guitar and it's, like, oh, what's that? You know, and you kind of get with a record button on my phone and all this kind of um, uh, stuff so I think there's an element of that with the folk devils and we I think there's a I, th I think there's a sense with us that we actually think we're pretty good you know I mean it might not be everybody's cup of tea 
in terms of what we do. And the reactions we've had from shows, I think, have borne that out. You know, we've held our audiences. They haven't kind of just wandered off. It's almost like, you know, kind of, wow, uh, what we do. And in some ways, we're probably better than we were back in the day. Because I think we've probably become better musicians. Yeah. And a little bit less bothered about annoying everybody that we come into contact with. Uh, you know, we get on well with sound engineers now. You know, well, <laughs> by the odd, if Mark's listening to this, uh, by the odd exception. Because <laughs> yes. it's interesting, because um, if you hadn't had this last five years, the archive and the legacy of the Folk Devils would have probably slightly sort of drifted at one well, sort of gone yeah it would have died out with the people that came to see us you know yeah i mean you know having the reissues i must admit there's a few labels like you know optic nerve cherry red fire station cloudbury who have all you know three of those are done by enthusiasts so cherry red's a bit of a different operation but it's great that they have gone back and sort of archived a lot of stuff and brought it out and put in nice sleeve notes because because I don't think of it totally as a nostalgia thing. Because I've gone, I've gone back and listened to things that I missed the first time, thinking because yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time you can't listen to everything. And also, like you said at the very start, you know, buying a record took months of saving up. Buying this thing was like a big gig, and you were going to play every track on that vinyl record for months, even if you hated it, because that that was a <laughs> yeah. lot of yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and you know, and so a record came along, you could see you know, advertise people talking about it, but if you didn't get to hear it, it was gone, it was gone, you know. We all took a chance and bought a record because of a journalist telling me it was the single of the week or album of the week and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's shit. Um, thank you for that. But, um, but so sometimes, you know, we just miss it because then, you know, a month later, something else comes along and you miss that band or that album, you know. So I've gone back and gone, blimey. You know, that's quite amazing. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, you can, re there's lots to kind of, uh, reappraise and go back to uh, uh, yeah I, I mean I, I think it, you know obviously it's benefited us but I, I think as well I think it's a bit like you know we've done a couple of shows with uh, the Wolfhounds and they've definitely re, 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 rediscovered their creative juices I mean not that they if you like they ever went away but there's a there's a sense of it's not just about being a band from you know the late 80s or or, or, or whatever they're singing songs. And if you like, I think the, the, the cultural element, and this is why I, I, I think embracing the age thing is a good thing. We, you know, if you, if you still listen to music to make sense of your, your world, if you like, then you need music that speaks to your experience now. I mean, you, I mean you know, whether that's music, you know, whether that's Miles Davis from way back when, or something that came out last week. There's almost an element. There's times when this stuff. I'm not interested in that kind of music or that. And then you hear something that really sparks something because it just speaks to you, and you don't know whether it's now. I suppose it's actually getting quite difficult to know whether something's ancient or brand new. Uh, I mean, I was listening to uh, Gideon Coe the other night. And there were a couple of things I thought that well, that sounds like it's from the fifties and it's brand new, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a labour of love. I think. I think it's it's the remnants of, of that time when the, if you like, music is you know 
pop music, rock and roll or, or, or whatever, was really at the heart of the culture. I don't think it is anymore. But I think mm. for people who grew up in there, the music still carries a kind of, I don't know, uh, a significance of some sort. They still kind of want that. There's still, there's still a hunger for it. There's an important, I think there's definitely an importance, you know, there's like something that isn't, isn't sort of, it's never been diluted. Because I must admit, I grew up with, yes, kind of quite a few friends who are older than me. I suppose they were part of that hippie generation. And they definitely stopped listening to new music in the 80s. You know, they'd got up to, you know, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, Grateful Dead, Jackson Brown, you know, all that. And then something happened. And I thought, God, is the same thing going to happen to me when I get older? But I'm still curious, but I don't know where to find new music. But I must admit, I do, I still have that. I really would love to hear something that, that I haven't heard before that makes me think, wow, I must go and play that endlessly for a couple of weeks. You know? <laughs> and I do, and I yeah. spoke, them, you know, like I didn't come across a band called The Sound at the time but then I've heard them now recently and thought god yeah they're from the 80s but it's like it has that still got the vinyl wire and and I kind of hear that track called women which I miss completely mm. check me out and uh, call me a music fan and I think god that's genius yeah that guy is genius you know I mean and and you know you think yeah I I love that feeling of still being that excited about something even though mm. it's really old <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, no, I, I think I, it's, yeah, I think it's, well, it's, it's life enhancing stuff. I mean, I never thought I'd say that about the folder was what I said in, in another interview, that actually the whole process of getting back together for the folk devils, and we were a kind of miserable bunch, really, you know, it, you know, we weren't, I mean, there was a humour there, but it was a very dark uh, humour. Uh, it's sort of strangely kind of life enhancing process to go through you feel kind of you know, like, like an element of spiritual growth or something through through uh, doing it um, yeah so yeah it's been Change. quite a nice it's been yeah it's it's been yeah, it, it seems it makes sense of something i'm not entirely sure what so obviously not enough it doesn't make enough sense um but it certainly it you know it fulfills a need i think in the end any kind of artistic creative endeavor there's a need to do it it certainly shaped your adult life didn't it let's face it yeah yeah and i mean i've always and yeah i guess i mean not playing in bands didn't mean i stopped listening to 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 music um but i think there's something about when you play you listen with uh, for me i listen with much more sort of uh, critical intensity um, you know especially if i hear things that really speak to me I go, how did they do it what is that that they're doing there um you know how, how do i get you know, how would i do that if i was trying to do something like that mm. or sometimes it's just a you know even just a melody line or a guitar line or whatever mm. but yeah I, I guess i guess for me the the, the, um, the thing about going back is I've, you know, you, you know a, a slightly different age group. So my big obsession lately has been Mick Ronson, uh, you know, famous for doing all the stuff with Bowie and yes. uh, Hunter. But I just thought, sort of, I thought I'd explore his career. He's, he, he had an astonishing career, even though he died in what, about 93, 94? Yes, that was um, around that time, wasn't it? And uh, again, maybe a bit too sort of uh, 
classic mainstream uh, rock but you know it's all out there now all that stuff's been reissued and uh, yeah. you know you can track stuff down and if you like create this narrative out of it uh, well i suppose bowie said you know he said that mick ronson was his jeff beck didn't he that was one of his famous yeah, lines yeah. he always wanted bowie always wanted a really good lead guitarist and um, mick ronson was that person and then people like uh, l slick and um, yeah, if, if, yeah, no, he's had a, a, amazing, uh, amazing people. Um, so, anything so, you want to ask me about the folk devils at all, <laughs> rather than Mick Ronson? No, yeah. So, what would you just lastly, what would you say then if you could have said something to your 18 year old self starting out, you know, in those, you know, those early years? Mm. Um, would the 18 year old self or indeed the 22 year old self even bothered uh, listening? Probably um, not. <laughs> uh, I think probably take yourself less seriously, but take the music a bit more seriously. You know, it's like work harder at the music, but don't get hung up on the persona kind of thing. You actually relax and uh, be kind, really. I think the folk devils, we, you know, probably a bit of kindness would have gone a long way back in the uh day but those are strange kind of uh, times i don't know whether that sort of covers it but i think there's an element of uh, if i was speaking to anybody who wanted to play in a kind of you know uh, uh a loud raucous noisy sort of bunch of band of troublemakers like we were um i think it's take the is work harder at the music don't be don't be too easily convinced of your own greatness if you like i think there's that horrible thing when you're young that uh, you substitute the kind of cockiness uh, for the confidence that comes from knowing you're really good and, you know the you, you and actually you become really good by working harder at it uh, i think not not in a kind of 9 to 5 way but actually just taking those moments where you get the opportunity to be creative, take them a bit more seriously, you know, don't have the seventh beer uh, or whatever, you know, pay attention. Cause it's, I mean, all that, that time flashes by, isn't it? You know? Yes. Uh, so I think that would probably be the, that would be uh, it. That'd be good. Well, look, this has been, well, thank you ever so much for giving me this, uh, the time for this interview. This has been brilliant. Oh, it's been, it's been, a, been a pleasure. I don't know whether it's of any use, but... Oh, uh, God, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's always good to hear. And it's great that the band, you know, you've got this new project, well, not the project, but the EP, and and hopefully, God knows, you can get to play live again soon. Yeah, well, I think, uh, ironically, we've actually been sort of firing... Uh, sketches of ideas across the the internet prior to what we anticipated was a get together in June, which obviously involves a few days rehearsals, and you know because you know we probably know the the old stuff well enough, so there's a chance to work on you know working one or two more new songs into a set and the rest of it. But sadly, the fact that we you know you know because we don't we live so far apart from each other. I mean, there's three guys, there's three that live in London, but I'm in Scotland, they're mixed in New Jersey. It, it makes it really, really difficult. And there's still something, you, you can fire ideas digitally, if you like, but there's still something about being in a room with someone uh, when they play, you know, it could be an offhand riff or something, 
you know, you just think, what's that? Um, so, so it would have been a luck, well, you know, we'll keep taking the vitamins and keep our weight down and wear face masks and, you know, hopefully reconvene at some time. Yes, that would be in, magic, wouldn't it? Into, in the not too distant future. And yeah. hopefully come out, come out playing Norwich or something. Yeah, I know, because I often see you um, playing with people like the Inca Babies and Harry and the Membranes and the um, crew. I don't know if you play with the cravat, cravats, but you. Yeah, we we did a great bunch of shows with the cravats. We were, that was a great time. Yeah. Played, uh, maybe is that two years ago? We did some show. We, we did, I think we've done two might have done two batches of shows with the cravats, and they're great. They're great. We got on really really well uh, with them. There wasn't any kind. Again, just it was just like a bunch of grown-ups getting together i can remember sound checks when you're younger and you know everybody's striding about trying to put other people off and you know you know, blow up their gear and stuff like that and everybody's just got like a house on fire um, yeah. so and the crats are great as well i was really impressed uh by them as a live band they're great the shend is it the shend yeah 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 keeps a keeps a fairly um High profile presence online, uh, yes. a bit of a, the, the surrealist, dardaist humour. The very uh, things, they were great. But I'll look, check it out, this has been great. Well, thank you, Chris. I better let you get on. But um, thanks for this. And I'll, um, yes, I'll keep in touch. But all the best all right. for the year. Okay, when do, you think the, when do you think whatever you do with this will be going out? Probably in two or three weeks' time. Yeah. All right, well, well, let us know, but uh, I'll, um, I'll, uh, I don't know whether I've already put a like on your page. Uh, I presume you've got a Facebook. Yes, but, um, yeah, I'll check that out, actually. Make, I'll just have a, I'll make a note. Yes, Facebook. Yeah, but no, I'll, 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 uh, I'll keep a, a weather eye out. Nick's really good at alerting people to what's going on. Oh, good. Uh, I'm probably well. friendly. He's the, he's the real anchor of the bands. Uh, he's, he's the one that keeps things ticking over. So. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, look, thanks ever so much, and um, right. I'll keep in touch, but all the best for the year. Great. Thanks, Take David. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello. Well, not hello. Goodbye, really. Um, that is the end of the interview. Well done if you got to the end. You deserve a medal. But anyway, look, I always love that last bit because it always is so fudgy. Um, and slightly embarrassing, but um, yeah, I, I embrace that side of it. Um, a big thank you to Chris from the Folk Devils for giving me the time for that interview. That's it. Um, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Um, also, these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. If you're um, struggling sleeping, I'm sure they'll send you right to Zedland. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.